Hello, everyone, and welcome to Health Conscious. My name is Peyton Einsner, and I'm so thankful for you joining us today. We have a fantastic episode planned with Cliff Barnes, who is a member of the firm Epstein Becker Green. But before I go into his formal introduction, I want to ask you, the listener, for a quick favor. If you could make sure that you subscribe and leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform, that would be very helpful as we continue to seek growth. It is always fantastic to have that feedback and to be able to use that to uh, pitch ideas and podcast episodes to potential guests in the future. So we'd really appreciate your support there. As always, please feel free to send us an email that's linked in the show notes below with any feedback that you may have on how we can make this better. Or if you have any tips on people that we could speak to that you, or uh, topics that we haven't discussed so far, we would really appreciate that feedback as well. Today's episode is co-hosted by Jefferson Akers along with Christian Taji. Uh, Jefferson is a first-year Sloan student. You haven't heard him on this podcast before, but we're very thankful for him jumping in and being willing to discuss this important topic with us today. But today's episode is with Cliff Barnes, and like I said, he's a member of the firm Epstein Becker Green in their healthcare and life sciences practice in the firm's DC and New York offices, and he's also the co-chair of the firm's health plan compliance group. Mr. Barnes has been employed by the firm for over 35 years and represents providers, uh, payers, and and managed care companies, and concentrates in Medicare and Medicaid and nonprofit associations. He's also the co-founder of the Medicaid Health Plans of American Corporation and has served as vice chair of the Accountable Care Organization Task Force of the American Health Law Association. In 2020, Mr. Barnes was elected as a fellow of the American Health Law Association in recognition of his career-long achievements, contributions, and tenure with the organization. He continues his service and leadership in the legal profession. Mr. Barnes was also selected to the Washington, D.C. Super Lawyers List in the area of healthcare from 2016 to 2020 and recommended in the Legal 500 United States in the area of healthcare, health insurers in 2016 and 2018. And in 2019, he was named to the Lawyer of Colors Inaugural Nation's Best List. We are so excited to have Cliff Barnes. And with that, I'll pass it over to my co-host, Christian Tachi. All right, so that's a little bit um, about Cliff. Cliff, how are you doing today? Excellent. Very well. Uh, 2-23-21. Uh, uh, it's, it's an amazing thing to be in, uh, in February in 2021. I'm, I'm just amazed at how time has moved, uh, and, uh, but doing very, very well. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, very, very glad to hear it. And I'm also excited to be co-hosting the episode today with uh, Jefferson Akers. Uh, Jefferson is a peer and colleague um, in the Sloan program, a standout. And I'm actually a little bit intimidated because I learned out, I learned yesterday that he has more podcast experience than I do. He actually co-hosted a, a basketball podcast from his college apartment um, with his roommate. So he's he's kind of the veteran pod, podcaster um, <laughs> on the line today, but very excited to be co-hosting with you today, Jefferson. Oh, Christian, thank you for the opportunity. I'm really excited to be here as well. And I'm glad you kind of brought me out of retirement. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so Cliff, I think we're just going to jump right into questions. First of all, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Um, my first question was kind of around the applicability of a JD in the work that your firm Epstein Becker Green does in health law. I think it's a common misconception that a JD can really primarily extend to things around malpractice in suits like that. 
But in doing a little bit of reading about your firm and you, it seems like you do a lot of work in the areas of things like M&A advisory, which is obviously a very hot topic in healthcare right now. So I just wonder if you could kind of explain to us how having a JD applies to the broader healthcare field. Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, and let me step back to say, uh, as you know, I, I was a um, participant in and graduate of the Sloan program uh, many, many years ago. Uh, so uh, I was uh, uh, in the Sloan and got an MBA in health administration. Actually, I, when I went back to business school from undergrad, I actually looked for schools that had MBA programs and, and Cornell was actually one of the few uh, that uh, that did and and fortunately I was able to get in and get a little scholarship and and uh, and graduate. Uh, but one of my mentors early on uh, told me that there were going to be great opportunities in health law and that I should really look into them. And I eventually did. Uh, and uh, and so when I first started in health law, it was uh, what we call backwater. There wasn't a lot of law because it wasn't really a specialty, uh, but it's developed uh, into one uh, at this time. So uh, my practice is um, I do a lot of, uh, of, of acquisitions uh, and uh, mergers, acquisitions and, and regulatory work. Uh, but there's also a number of other areas. There's fraud and abuse. Uh, there is... Uh, uh, litigation. There's uh, all kinds of corporate activities. There uh, uh, is uh, 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 we we do life sciences as well, which is a lot of regulatory work with the FDA. Uh, we represent drug companies. All of the drug pricing issues uh, occur are legal issues. Uh, in my practice, I get involved in uh, representing clients uh, in. Uh, putting together transactions, uh, and uh, I, 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 I enjoy that area because I like putting things together. Uh, that's my, that's that's kind of what if I had my desire, what I would do is is help put things together. And so, uh, uh, M and A is basically that. I work with clients, and my focus right now is mostly on post acute, uh, and with uh, home care. Uh, uh, with um, skilled nursing facilities, uh, hospice facilities, uh, and and the like, and uh, so I represent them as they acquire and move into new areas, uh, and also do the regulatory work around around that. So there's a a lot of structuring, uh, but I also represent uh, uh, hospital systems. Uh, so for example, I'm uh, working with uh, uh, a hospital. Um, uh, system that is going to be acquiring or buy or building a new hospital. And I'm going to be doing all of the regulatory work for this $600 million hospital. Uh, and it happens to be uh, uh, Howard University Hospital. So it's a, a um, it, it is a historically uh, uh, black hospital and they are moving into the 21st century. So for, to me, to, to be a part of that, that's a, 
that's for me a, a it's a important uh, thing uh, for me uh and uh but uh, i work with uh, clients around the country our firm has 15 offices uh we're about 300 attorneys uh, 15 offices around the country and basically in all the major cities uh and so i've got clients in new york chicago uh, we're working with uh, health plans right now. I do a lot of work with health plans, particularly Medicaid health plans as well. Uh, and I have uh, worked at starting health plans. I do the regulatory work around health plans. Right now, we're doing a lot of work in uh, mental health parity. Uh, and uh, as health plans begin to uh, file the uh, appropriate reports with the states and structure their mental health benefits. Uh, so they are in parity with their uh, 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 medical benefits. Uh, they're a whole host of issues. Uh, and so we work with them around that. Uh, we're working with plans on interoperability, the rules around in interoperability. We work with health plans about so security and, uh, uh, and privacy, many, many issues uh, involved. And so we help clients navigate those issues uh, so uh, they uh, continue to be you know, effective providers uh, and avoid uh, being fined or liability from, uh, you know, from uh, agencies as well as uh, individuals. So health law, uh, in, and actually just going back to your idea of medical malpractice, that's the one thing that our firm does not do. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so, uh, the, 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 the activities in health law are, are just, uh, uh, amazing and they continue to evolve. For example, all of the issues that are around the, uh, Affordable Care Act, a number of them about how it was structured, how to participate are legal issues. Uh, there's going to be a whole series of regulations on whatever new healthcare um, uh, universal coverage type structure that's developed, but with the new administration. Uh, I was just recently uh, wrote an article on Medicaid work requirements, which is uh, one of the issues that was uh, uh, has just been dealt with by the Biden administration, which was a holdover from the Trump administration. Uh, and so the legal issues involved in healthcare are, uh, are, are, are broad, uh, wide, and deep uh, because healthcare is a regulated, a highly regulated uh, industry. Uh, and so all of those regulations and uh, activities involve lawyers. So in a few words, that's... Uh, 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 what what how how I would respond to that to that no that it's question. great to hear that the field of health law is so comprehensive I definitely wasn't aware of that before so thank you for your insights there um, you mentioned you have some expertise around Medicaid and kind of CMS plans and with that I was kind of wondering if you could give us an overview of your opinion on how with COVID nineteen and the financial hardships a lot of providers are experiencing what do you think that means as far as do you think it will accelerate the trend towards value based care do you think We'll still be moving at a slow and steady pace towards achieving value-based care. Well, I think I think it will uh, uh, continue in that direction. Uh, I, I think the world is, as we come out of COVID, 
we're going to be in a different world. Uh, there, we're not going to be going back. I, I hear a number of people talking about, I can't wait till we get back to normal. I don't think there's going to be a back to normal. There'll be a new normal. Uh, and uh, if we think about what happened after uh, 9-11, uh, where uh, literally I think there were, uh, you know, 3,000 people died. Uh, but the world changed because of all of the uh, safety precautions that were implemented, and we had to make adjustments. Well, here we've got uh, COVID-19, which has killed now 500,000 people within a year, which is incredible. It's like that, there's nothing like that that has ever occurred in the United States in the history of the United States. Uh, and so the impact of it, the impact on all of the businesses that have closed and uh, yeah, yeah, uh, is, 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 is tremendous. So, uh, how we come out of COVID-19, uh, my sense is that, uh, there, there, it's going to be, uh, at some level, an economic boom, uh, because of, uh, uh, pent up demand. Uh, as as we as we get past this period, and I'm I can say that I'm one of the ones that have now had my vaccine. I had both my vaccines. I had Moderna, so I am I'm feeling uh, a little more empowered to get out and about. I'm still using my mask and doing social distancing, but I'm much more comfortable in knowing that it, the likelihood of me getting very sick or dying is is uh, is is very low. And I think that as more and more people get uh, uh, vaccinated, that there will be, uh, you know, we're going to have IDs around vaccinations. Uh, uh, here's an example uh, firm where uh, we're going to have, uh, we're preparing for a partner retreat in November. And they're already putting out uh, uh, requirements that you'll have to be vaccine, vaccinated to attend. Uh, and so my sense is that as we move forward, that we're going to have more activities, social activities, as well as convention type activities that are going to require vaccination. Uh, and so that's going to move us, uh, you know, towards uh, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, that that um, uh, incentivize people in some respects to uh, to get vac vaccinated and, and to move into the, the COVID-19. But I think as, as providers, what's happening is, um, is there will be an, uh, another new normal in terms of uh, what's going to be happening with nursing homes and how uh, uh, they, uh, how, how, when people are going to be comfortable in putting people back in nursing homes and the kinds of uh, activities they're going to have to be involved in. Uh, the move towards more home care uh, we see that to a greater extent. And so when we think about value-based purchasing, uh, which is ultimately the result, we, 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 we have to now move towards paying for the result that we seek as opposed to just paying for services. Uh, it is part of the evolution that we have come from, from fee-for-service. And I remember when I started in health management, everything was fee-for-service. And it, it, fee for service such that uh, whatever the provider uh, billed was paid. It didn't matter if it was, uh, and uh, 10 providers provided the same thing and, uh, 
and every one of them charged different, they would just be paid exactly uh, what they charged. Uh, and and so uh, and what happened in the fee for service movement is there were abuses and people began to churn uh, because the incentive was the more the more procedures I provided, the more I got paid. Whether or not the procedures did any benefit, uh, whether or not they uh, uh, it, it, uh, effectively uh, provided services such that the patient got better, uh, that wasn't uh, uh, reviewed. So gradually what's happening as is the system is beginning to look at, well, what is the result that we seek? The result that we seek is not merely the intervention of healthcare. The, the result that we seek is the result, the outcome. Uh, and so we are consistently moving towards outcome measures, which is a uh, which which is uh, determined through a value-based purchasing model. Uh, so I think that's going to continue. Uh, I don't see any end uh, in mind. Whether or not it's going to be accelerated, I think uh, clearly we can look at uh, telehealth kinds of activities have been accelerated. Uh, and I think uh, as we continue to move and get the metrics around how we measure outcomes uh, and then incentivize people to do that, uh, I think that will definitely continue. And um, uh, most recently, the uh, HHS and CMS have put out uh, some safe harbors around uh, value-based purchasing so that you can structure them in ways that avoids fraud and abuse type allegations. So that's gonna make providers much more comfortable to implement um, uh, value-based purchasing. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm working with a number of clients around value-based purchasing initiatives. Now, this is an especially interesting point, especially around the legal aspect of moving to value-based care. I want to kind of transition a little bit with my next question and talk about your career trajectory. So on the EBG website, I saw, and I'm sure as you're aware, in a professional setting, trust is so crucial to achieving success. And in your biography on the EBG website, you had kind of mentioned how it can be difficult to establish trust when people are hesitant to build relationships outside of their own race. And so given that some people can be reluctant to establish these relationships outside their own race, I was wondering if you could tell us about how you were able to circumvent that and deal with that and still achieve so much success over the course of your career. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it is, uh, it has been an issue. It still is an issue. It's not as great of an issue. Um, uh, I can remember, and uh, I wrote an article about it uh, one time. Uh, this was many years ago. Actually, it was uh, a couple of years after I became partner at the firm, which was uh, actually 1990. Uh, and, um, and I went out, uh, to, and this was pr prior to uh, your picture being on your, uh, on your, uh, uh, on your email or on your uh, uh, bio. And so uh, there was a, a, a pretty large hospital system that was looking at uh, merging with another hospital system, and they were looking for counsel uh, to help them reorganize their corporate structure. And so uh, a, um, another partner uh, of the firm and I put together a proposal 
uh, to, uh, you know, work with them. And uh, we both had uh, MBAs in health management. We had both done uh, work uh, separate and apart from our legal work. And then we had lots of experience in legal work. Uh, and so uh, we got uh, selected uh, as one of the finalists to come out and do an interview. So uh, I went out and uh, uh, when I walked into the, the room, I said, my name is Cliff Barnes. And the guy looked at me and he put out his hand, but at the same time, he moved backwards. <laughs> it moved backwards so much so that I could grab, uh, gra almost just touch the, his fingers. <laughs> and I said, I said, oh, I don't think this is going to go too well. But ultimately, he was shocked that I was a black person. Uh, and, uh, and the reality is, um, you know, that there are some people uh, that uh, still view uh, black people as inherently inferior. That that's, was the legacy of slavery. Uh, and, uh, and as I practice law, uh, it, which I, I consider a, a pretty intimate um, uh, service because ultimately you have to advise people about you know, their livelihood. You have to advise people about you know, what they should do in certain circumstances. And so if a person doesn't view me as a human being, surely they can't uh, 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 hire me to advise them on important aspects of their business. So, uh, so the reality is that that uh, still exists. I mean, it uh, uh, was manifested in uh, the recent uh, activities in uh, January uh, 6th, but but it has been alive and well uh, for the 401 years that the black people have been in the United States, which is from 1616, uh, 1619 uh, rather. Uh, and so, uh, uh, it, it, uh, and so I had to make a decision. Uh, I said, well, I can allow this guy to define me, or I can work with and look for people, uh, that can work with me. Uh, and ultimately, uh, what's important is I find some people that can work with me. I don't need to work with everybody. Uh, I, I, and so that became, uh, my approach to, to, uh, uh, to uh, practicing law. And then I also figured out that uh, uh, my mom always said, God bless the child has got his own. So I figured I have to, I have to get my own. In other words, I have to find my own clients. I've got to uh, put together this thing uh, so that I can be secure. That, like in a law firm, there are many partners that work for other partners. Uh, and uh, being the first black partner in the firm, uh, it wasn't really, though I, I work with a number of the partners off and on, there wasn't anybody that would, I could work with uh, and just do that. Uh, and so I, I, it became clear to me as I was moving on and becoming an, uh, a senior associate that, uh, you know, to survive and thrive in this environment, uh, I'm going to need to find my clients and build a practice. And so that's what I was able to do. So I think what, what's important for any uh, minority black person uh, that, that is practicing law or uh, uh, you know, working in the health management space uh, is, is you gotta assess your environment. Uh, there are always gonna be people uh, 
uh, the legacy of, of slavery is alive and well, and I think we see it playing out uh, in the United States as the United States becomes uh, much more, uh, uh, more minorities as part of the population. There are, there are some in the majority that, that feel very insecure about that. Uh, and, and it's playing out uh, all over the, the country uh, at, at this time. And I think it's gonna continue to play out over the next 10 years. Uh, and so we're gonna have a much more visceral reaction uh, for some uh, in this legacy of, you know, uh, and, and I think it's fundamental to the United States, the, the legacy that black people are fundamentally unequal. Uh, and so uh, that can justify, uh, that it justified slavery, that justified Jim Crow, that justified, and it justifies right now the, the effort uh, of some to invalidate voting. All of the voting that was attempted to be invalidated was uh, voting by minority uh, communities. And so that's what they considered fraudulent voting. Uh, and, uh, and so there are what we call, um, uh, you know, there, 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 there is uh, language that's used today that uh, takes us out of, you know, people calling, uh, you know, using words like, you know, uh, uh, profane words to uh, words that are code words, uh, state rights. Uh, you, you know, uh, things are dangerous. There, there are code words that are used throughout our society uh, that is used by the majority society to say, uh, we gotta put black folks in their place because uh, there is a concept that if they rise, I'm gonna fall. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a view of lack uh, and uh, and that, that kind of takes us into a whole spiritual thing in, in my mind, but, but, but there is a, a great deal of lack of trust. And when there isn't any trust, it's very, very hard to, to work with any, of, any person like that. So again, for black folks, we've got to be very clear on our environment. Uh, you, know, you can do all the things you can do to change. Some people are going to change, many are not. Uh, but it's important to assess your environment so that you can figure out how to survive and thrive because that's, that's what's important. Uh, and uh, it can be done. Uh, those people who have views uh, that uh, say that black folks are inferior and they shouldn't be here, only I should be here. Ultimately, we've got to work around them. We got to go around them. We got to go over them. We got to go under them. Uh, we cannot allow them uh, to stop uh, the, uh, uh, the, the work that, uh, that we have to do. Um, it, it's something like uh, if, you, if you think about a stream, uh, a, uh, a drop of water doesn't stop at the rock and say, oh, you're in my way, rock, uh, please let me go. The, the drop of water goes around it, under it. it it's, got a, it's got some place to go. Uh, it is gonna figure out how to get there. And that's what we gotta be. We gotta be uh, the drop of water in the stream. We gotta figure out how to get there and keep on moving. Akwa, thank you for all those insights. You made a lot of strong points for both myself and any other young professional listeners we have. Um, as I'm sure you're well aware, I think NASI does a tremendous job of empowering Black healthcare leaders. And the last question I want to ask before I kick it to Christian is, in your experience in tenure working with NASI and being an, an involved member, I was wondering if you could tell us about 
a healthcare leader you met who had a significant impact on you and also if you don't mind kind of elaborating on what really stood out about their leadership style? Yeah, well, there are many. <laughs> I think um, uh, ANASI is a great organization. Uh, actually, my first mentor, my first uh, was one of the founders of, of NASI, Haynes Rice. And uh, one of the reasons I'm still involved in NASI is Haynes Rice, because I told him that, uh, you know, I'm going to work with NASI and make sure that his baby becomes uh, something that he would really be proud of. Uh, Haynes Rice was a unique individual. He was uh, a, a brilliant man. Uh, he went to, uh, uh, he actually graduated from the University of Chicago in 1955, the business school, and he graduated number one in his class. And he sat by himself the entire time uh, because the white folks didn't want to sit next to him. So, uh, so, uh, and, uh, but he came out uh, and uh, he became the first uh, black person on the uh, American Hospital Association board. Uh, very influential uh, in in healthcare uh, in the early in the in the fifties and the sixties. Um, uh, I worked for him in the early seventies. I got out of uh, business school in seventy four and and worked with him when he was the deputy commissioner of health. He had run a number of hospitals, and so he was a real inspiration for me because he was brilliant uh, and he knew what he was doing and he knew how to affect change, uh, uh, to be bold enough to go where other people haven't gone because you need to go there, uh, and to be focused enough uh, so that uh, you know uh, and work uh, on what's right. Uh, it's very, very important. And so I have found that to be the case with a number of people uh, in, uh, in NASI. One of our graduates uh, uh, from the Sloan program, Percy Allen is a very good friend of mine. Percy Allen, we've created a lecture series around Percy. Uh, Percy has, he was an innovator. He, he took uh, the knowledge of, uh, from uh, Sloan and his knowledge of surviving and thriving and put that together. And that's an awesome combination. Uh, and our ability to uh, work with people, diverse people. Ultimately, Black folks are usually used to working with diverse people. Uh, and, uh, and so that's a skill. Uh, and, uh, and so the utilizing those skills are important, particularly as uh, the marketplace is beginning to see that the uh, companies need to have diverse uh, uh, executives, uh, as well as uh, uh, service providers, in order to bring to the table the diversity of views. Um, there was an interesting um, uh, uh, podcast that I had uh, with an individual who is working with um, uh, uh, a, uh, a health insurer, and he is heading up uh, their, um, uh, their, you know, basically their venture capital operation. Uh, health insurers now have to innovate. Uh, and so they've got to be able to invest in new companies that have the innovation 
in order to incorporate that into their processes uh, for them to, uh, in effect, provide effective health insurance and integrate the services that they need to become cost effective. Uh, and, uh, and the number, uh, and who's a, he's an African-American, he's an attorney uh, and, uh, and uh, who went, uh, got involved in health law uh, and then uh, took this route because an opportunity was opened up to him at, uh, at uh, an insurance company. It was actually Care First company that I was on the board of. Uh, and he was saying that the, the number of CEOs of venture funds, black CEOs, I, I think there might be one or two. Uh, and so the, the venture capital world is basically uh, uh, white men. Uh, there are not that many women involved. So, uh, and what's happening, and now we're seeing it in the literature, the venture funds are saying, look, this ain't working because we are missing a whole group of activities and companies because it's not in our radar screen. We, the white men don't see certain things. We need to get other perspectives in here so we can see other opportunities in the marketplace that are, are effective in the market because the market is diverse. So, so what's happening is um, is is that um, you know diversity is is a fact of life, uh, and uh, and so uh, many of the executives and people in NASI understand that, uh, and they have been pioneers in their own right. Kevin Lofton, who became the CEO of Catholic Health Initiatives. Uh, a very good friend of mine, lots of good information in terms of his struggle and surviving and thriving in, in that environment. Uh, Eugene Woods, who's uh, uh, CEO of uh, a system in North Carolina. Uh, it, all of the executives that have come through NASI have been pioneers in their own right. Uh, and the lessons that they have learned, which they pass on, are invaluable. Uh, and so, um, you know, to be in that space, uh, to be in the space where you've got excellence, uh, so you understand what excellence is, uh, I think is critical. And I would encourage uh, uh, minority students uh, in health management uh, to utilize that as a vehicle. Uh, many of uh, the Sloan uh, folks that participated, for example, in the um, case competition. They actually got jobs through uh, being at the NASI uh, events. Uh, and because that's where uh, a number of the uh, minority executives re reside uh, and, uh, and, and the places that they go. Uh, and so I would just encourage that. Uh, I, I think uh, it was, I, I did not, uh, I, I was involved in NASI when I came out of uh, uh, business school because it was uh, at that at that particular time they had meetings as I say in in a Volkswagen there were so few uh, people uh, but uh, once I got out I got involved I've been the general counsel for NASI for the last almost thirty years <laughs> and uh, and uh, they pay me a high fee of zero so uh, it's a it's a pro bono activity for me but it's a it's a labor of love because. Uh, I see it as an effective organization and an effective way for me to uh, to not only give back, but uh, talk with people, meet people. I do a, a number of seminars. I've done seminars about uh, 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 
Trump administration and how uh, black executives need to uh, persevere in, in this uh, day and time uh, and uh, combined uh, what I think uh, is um, uh, an ability to be grounded uh, in, in the environment becomes essential. Uh, it becomes essential uh, for you to not get lost. And what happens all too often is we get lost and we don't even know we're lost. Uh, and, and that's the worst thing in the world for anybody, uh, and particularly for a minority, because what happens all too often with minorities is you only get one shot. Uh, and uh, if you get lost, uh, rarely do you get another shot. So you got to take advantage of the shots that you have. Uh, and while there's an infinite number of opportunities, the real question is, what is the opportunity that you can see and you can take advantage of? Uh, and so uh, uh, an ability to do that, to learn how to do that, uh, becomes critical. And I think uh, uh, NASI and that experience can be helpful in that regard. Cliff, thank you so much for sharing this powerful dialogue, uh, perspectives and advice. And just kind of turning to our listeners, I, I really hope that this conversation is kind of a more introspective episode than, than, than most of our episodes too. And then we can use this conversation to kind of self-reflect on our own role um, in advancing and promoting um, equity. Um, Cliff, one of the phrases that I've heard you use uh, a few times during this conversation is, is spiritual grounding. And before we started recording, we were kind of talking about that a little bit is something that I'm finding as an early careerist is I need to be very deliberate with time where I am spending meditating in my own thoughts, connecting with, um, with myself and my spirit, right? It's really easy for me to drown myself in the, in the thoughts and in, in words of others, which a lot of the time that's good, good media and good company and things like that. But it's really, really important uh, to be spiritually grounded. Would you mind just touching on the role that that spiritual grounding has played for you in your life? Well, I will, I will say it, it is, uh, it, it's increasing over time. Uh, and uh, I, I think uh, I have, uh, it has been a, a increasingly important aspect uh, because I have begin, I've begun to see the power in it. And uh, uh, I think this is something that really relates to everyone. Uh, and, uh, but I also think it particularly, uh, yeah, yeah, well, it actually re relates to, to, to everyone because uh, yeah, in, in our society today and even you know, societies uh, years gone by, uh, it, it, but the society today, it's moving so fast. There's so many things going on. When you look back at, uh, you know, 100 years ago, people got up in the morning, uh, many times they worked on a farm, they did a few things, they had dinner, and, uh, you know, when the sun went down, they went to bed. Uh, and, 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 uh, and, and life was not as complex uh, as it is today. There's so many things going on. Uh, uh, in terms of just uh, communications, we got the telephone, we got the internet, we got the cell phone, uh, we got we're we're tweeting, we're facebooking, we're LinkedIning. I mean, we got all of this going on, and then we're we're working, we're socializing, uh, we're driving places, flying places, and so uh, it's much easier in my mind to get lost in the activities of the day in in the the uh, uh, you know in the five senses as I call it, uh, 
Uh, and so, uh, and when you're when when you're only operating in the five senses, what happens is you become much more reactive to what's happening in the five senses. Uh, and what I'm saying is that uh, when your whole world is, you know, taste, smell, touch, uh, and uh, and 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 hearing uh, and thinking. That that what happens is if any of those things change, uh, you you change. You know, somebody yells at you, you're gonna yell back at them. Uh, and uh, you know, you're driving down the street, somebody cuts you off, you're gonna try to cut them off. You're gonna yell at them. What happens is you become the very thing that you don't like, uh, which actually impacts on your whole integrity uh, and also gets you lost. Uh, and so. I think spirituality, and when I think about spirituality, I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Buddhist, uh, uh, and uh, and all of those uh, address spirituality. There is spirituality in all of that, but it's not that. Spirituality is about really the God within you uh, and connecting to that, that groundedness that uh, enables you to make decisions in my mind uh, about particularly how you do things. I, 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 I construct it in the sense that our humanism is what we do. Our spirituality is about how we do it. Uh, and so you can say uh, you, you know, uh, a, a, a thing to an individual, uh, you know, I think you should uh, uh, you know, go home. Uh, and but how you say it <laughs> changes everything. You know, if you said, "I think you, I think you should go home," or you're saying, "I, I think you should, you might want to really go home." If you're going to say something from the heart, it's completely different than if you can say something from the mind. And so, how we do things in our own life makes a difference in how it's how we impact others. And how we impact ourselves, uh, and so uh, for me, it has become uh, just very, very important. For, so, so that I don't get lost. What happens with clients, for example, is many times clients are confused. Sometimes clients are not quite sure what to do, uh, and if I get confused, <laughs> then I'm going to lose that client. I'm not going to treat, uh, be able to do. Uh, uh, effective uh, 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 counseling with them. So for me, groundedness enables me to stay objective, uh, enables me to not uh, react, uh, but rather respond. And I think that that becomes so important because reactive uh, nature usually is, is out of fear. Uh, and if you're reacting out of fear, your effectiveness is immediately uh, diminished. Uh, and so, uh, and so I, I look at those things and in my own world, I have seen the difference. I have seen the, the, the difference in the result that I've been able to achieve when I am responding to something as opposed to reacting to something. And I think the way that you respond gotta be based on a groundedness within, uh, so that you can, think about what's going to be in your best interest, what's in the other person's best interest. 
if you're reacting, that's not the case. You're, you're, you're in effect uh, uh, merely doing what the other person has done because you want to get back at them. Again, it's working out of fear. So, uh, you know, if you boil it all down, I think there is two things that exist. There's fear and there's love. Uh, and the real question is, where are you coming from? Uh, and I'm not talking about love in terms of emotional love. I'm talking about divine love. I'm talking about the ability to be patience, uh, the ability to be kindness, the ability uh, to uh, not be envious, the ability to not be boastful, the ability uh, to listen, uh, the, be, the ability to be at peace. All of these things help anyone to be more effective in what they do. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm very, uh, interested in it. Matter of fact, I'm writing a book about it. Uh, and, uh, because I, I think it's, it's critical, uh, the more involved I am. And I think when I, when I think about, uh, all of these issues around race, I think the, the bottom line is, is a, a lack of connectivity to their spiritual self, because if you're involved in a spiritual self, you're not going to be viewed viewing uh, human beings as uh, inferior. Uh, you're not going to be able to justify the ends by the means, you know. Uh, and uh, because if you're working in a spiritual uh, sense, you understand that the means are the ends. Everything that you do has to relate. Uh, and uh, so. Uh, in a few words, uh, I know that was probably a little bit of rambling, <laughs> but uh, but uh, I I am um, I am even more. I mean, every every day I get more uh, encouraged by why spirituality is important, and particularly and when we think about healthcare, uh, it is a people business. Uh, and we're constantly interacting with people, trying to make people better. Uh, and so part of it is how do we make ourselves better uh, to be reflective enough to be able to look at yourself, to look at your uh, unconscious behaviors, uh, to, to look at your own uh, unconscious biases. We all have them. Everybody has unconscious bias. Uh, but our ability to look at them and be able to uh, address them is going to make us much more effective in the marketplace, the more conscious we are, because we don't get tripped up by our own behaviors. So uh, I think uh, increasingly, if we all look at that, I think we can be more effective. So many important nuggets in there. I'm going to have to go back and rewind, but a few, two, two key, key points that I just took from that, from, from our, from that question. Humanism is what we do. Spirituality is how we do it and the difference between reactiveness and responsiveness. I just want to further emphasize that to our listeners and really just thank you again, Cliff, for your time today. You know, you're a very generous person with your time and your talents and your experience, both to the Sloan program and to NASI, as we mentioned, and just healthcare as a whole. Um, really, really appreciate you sharing your time, um, talents, and perspectives um, on our episode today. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for asking me. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's an honor to be in a position uh, to uh, reflect, and uh, every reflection helps me <laughs> as well. Uh, gives me an opportunity to stop and think about it, and uh, and and be with it. So uh, 
So uh, I am I am benefited as well. So uh, I'm glad I can uh, offer a word or two, and hopefully uh, it uh, it it can be heard and um, uh, and, uh, and 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 become something that uh, is useful. Excellent, and we and we look forward. Um in anticipation of the release of your book as well to, to just kind of further learn from, from you and your experiences. So if you'd like to learn more about Cliff, um, we'll, we'll, we'll put a link to his biography in the, in the description of this podcast episode. Um, thanks for listening to the Health Conscious Podcast. Um, we'll have more episodes as we always do on a bi-weekly basis, but as always, please feel free to reach out if there are further uh, future topics or guests that, that um, you suggest that we um, consider in the Health Conscious Podcast. Thanks again. Excellent. And let's stop recording.